I'm Damian Willis, and this is the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the bigger stories of the week. In this episode, we're talking collaborative solutions-based journalism. We'll be joined by Diana Albasolar, a former reporter for the Sun News and my former co-worker, who is now project manager of the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative, and Reyes Mata III, a reporter for the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative and a freelance reporter for the Las Cruces Sun News. For the past year or so, he has written the Border Report, which you'll often find in Sunday's edition of the newspaper, and online at www.lcsun-news.com. At the Sun News, we've been involved with the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative from the ground up. In 2021, loyal readers may recall Walt Rubel's coverage of a very unusual legislative session due in large part to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that brings us to the collaborative's next steps, a deep dive into solutions-based journalism, looking at how COVID-19 has impacted Southern New Mexicans and the steps forward toward recovery, rebuilding, and resilience. Reyes will be tasked with covering that effort for news outlets across Southern New Mexico through his new role at the collaborative. First, Diana and Reyes, thanks for joining us to share your reporting process with our listeners, because that's really what this podcast is all about. Well, thank you for the invitation to be here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, um, Diana, and maybe you should just start where you'd like. Tell us a little bit about how this project came to be, the uh, role of the New Mexico Local News Fund, and what you hope to accomplish. Well, the New Mexico Local News Fund was founded a few years ago. It's a relatively young organization, and its overall mission is to support the local news and information ecosystem here in New Mexico, which is being done through a variety of programs and projects. Overall, we've we've just seen a need for greater support for local news in southern New Mexico, and particularly more greater need for local news in Spanish as well here in southern New Mexico. And so that has sort of led to the creation of this project over the past couple of years called the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative. And it's a partnership of local news organizations. And also we're inviting community organizations to the table to have input on this collaborative as well. A year ago, it was in its, the project was in its infancy, I would say, and we were only focusing on the New Mexico legislature. This year, it's taking a little bit more defined shape and broader scope. And we're going to be looking at COVID-19 recovery in society. And there's going to be, hopefully, it's going to take place over a longer period, the reporting, as well as there will be more components to the project than than a year ago. And so it's really taking on a, a bigger and broader shape, I guess. So, you know, at the time of the legislative project, that's when uh, Walt Rubel was 
the reporter covering the the state legislature. And it was so important that year because not only because of the geographical challenges that so many southern New Mexico newsrooms face in sending a reporter to uh, to Santa Fe, but also the resources that uh, are strained in, in newsrooms across the state and across the country. Definitely. That's that's a theme across the country, like you said, and it's it's very difficult, I think, for many people who aren't involved in local news on a daily basis to understand all the dynamics that are going on simply because they're not involved in it on a daily basis. Not because it's too complex to understand. It's just a lot of people aren't too very close to it, I guess I should say. And so there are challenges that have been uh, local news has been facing for pretty much two decades now with the advent of the internet, which really eroded a lot of advertising revenue that had historically supported newspapers. And also there's just more places to go online to to get information as well. It doesn't even have to be local news. And so that has been an ongoing challenge and it's definitely taking place here in New Mexico uh, without a sustainable financial picture when newsrooms aren't able to hire enough reporters. And that means issues go uncovered that probably would have been covered in the past. And so these are, are some pretty big challenges that many people are um, trying to come to some solutions for across the country. But that's one of the things that we're doing with the New Mexico Local News Fund. And as an extension, the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative, we're hoping to try and counter some of these challenges. And Reyes, what got you interested about the job? The possibility to go out and talk to people. You know, there's there's so many so many ways that the pandemic affected communities, especially out in, in southern New Mexico, where, you know, they, they don't necessarily have the same infrastructure in, in terms of getting access to, to information as, as the northern parts of the state. And it, it's an area that I'm familiar with. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a community very much like those in southern uh, New Mexico, you know, out in El Paso. You know, when when this opportunity came up to be able to go out and and talk to people and see how their um, how their families are, are faring during the pandemic, you see how their communities are doing, and you know, match that together with with data and and with what the uh, legislatures are are doing in in Santa Fe. You know, I, I I thought it was a really unique situation, and I was eager to join and and you know lend my experience uh, to be able to help tell a you know, part of New Mexico's story during the pandemic. Tell us a little bit more about your background. You've written an awful lot about the border, including recently. Yes, um, yeah, I, I started reporting on the border back in nineteen. 19- 93 94 and there there was this newsletter that came out of the uh, the nascent house there at nmsu and it was called frontera norte sur and that's where i first started to do my reporting as a student you know i i just i fell in love with trying to understand the border and, and all its historical complexities and i've, I've stayed reporting as, as much as as i could throughout the years I've worked with the El Paso Times, uh, with uh, Diario del Paso. I've uh, worked with the Las Cruces Sun News also. And as, as much as possible, I, I always wanted to write about the border and, and, and always, you know, about the, the larger themes um, that were impacting the 
the communities here. And then as a as a freelancer, I do work for the Albuquerque Journal for border issues. So I I'll go into into Mexico and, and talk to the people there and, and see how it relates to the different policies that you know the different U.S. policies that that we have here that are affecting the border on on this side. And I, I also do work for um, for Gannett, um, also reporting on on border issues. Uh, so this, I, I see this as, as a way to put all that border experience to work in, in a way that's going to benefit the, the readers in, in Southern New Mexico and, and throughout the state. And so um, it, it's been uh, so far, it's been a very enjoyable process. Can you speak a little bit more about your relationship with the border? Sure. Well, I, I was born in El Paso, a small neighborhood, heck, maybe a half mile from the border. And, and you know, I, I remember ever since I was a kid, I would see the uh, uh, the migrants coming across and they would go down our street that, that was part of their route. And, and this was before you know, Operation Hold the Line, before there was any real significant effort to to stop border crossers. You know, there, there was a much heavier flow of people coming across and they always had something to sell. They, they were, you know, very friendly, very, uh, you know, we in our neighborhood, we weren't threatened at all by them. And, and, you know, we'd help them with water, with, with food. And, and, you know, sometimes they would rest there and in, in, in our front yard. And, and, you know, we never had an issue with, you know, the, the downside of, of border crossing. And I, uh, I'm, I'm very much aware that, that there is one, but, you know, growing up, it was a different atmosphere, a different environment for the border. It, it wasn't quite as heavily monitored. It wasn't leaning towards the, the, uh, the military component and, and, and it wasn't so highly uh, politicized. And, and throughout the years, it's become much more complex, and it, it figures very high in, in the national dialogue. And you know, it's a it, it's a hot button issue, and sometimes that's good, sometimes it's bad. There's a lot of misinformation about that. But one thing that I always try to keep in mind whenever I'm, I'm reporting is that for the most part, these are these are good people who are coming across, and and they're just looking for an opportunity and. Many of them have families here and, and, and just the cross-border countries, crossers uh, uh, of relationships between El Paso, Juarez, uh, you know, Sunland Park and, and, and Anapra, uh, uh, Columbus and, and, and Palomas. You know, there's so many border communities and they rely on each other and there, there's genuine friendships there. And, and that's something that I, in, in my reporting, I, I, I try to make sure that that does come through just how the border communities need each other, regardless of what side they're on. Diana, you mentioned that as the collaborative steps into this next phase, you're working more with some local organizations. Tell us what your vision for that is and how you're seeing it take shape. Yes, well, across the country, these journalism collaboratives are becoming more common. The last few years, there have been several that have formed. And and so there are sort of these lessons being learned from one another. And I think one of the goals in trying to incorporate community organizations and, you know, even potentially, you know, the university if they're interested in a city library, these maybe partners that we wouldn't have considered um, newsroom partners in the past, is that many times communities have been left out of local news altogether, even when newsrooms were better staffed. And that is is a challenge that we would like to try to overcome, uh, particularly with communities of color, uh, Spanish-speaking communities here, that there's just, we want to try to break down those barriers that have his- historically existed and, I guess, seek um, seek more more equity in local news. So in trying to reach out to these different organizations, that's we're we're doing it with sort of like open ears, I guess. Like what what is it 
that we're missing? What's, what are your thoughts on the pandemic? You know, how have you seen it play out? How are your communities and the people you work with experiencing the pandemic? What are some of the long-standing challenges that are probably going to be in place? And by getting this input from, you know, people who are working with communities in oftentimes like a very, there's some of like the frontline services that are being provided. And we're hoping to have a, like a better direction for the reporting that Reyes is going to do as part of the collaborative, as well as hopefully our member news organizations also undertake some reporting on of their own around some, some of these big issues. And so we're just hoping it, it will create a more informed collaborative and also more diverse as well. Right. By, by bringing clarity to the problem, it brings clarity to the reporting. Certainly. Yeah. And I, I guess I should also mention that one of the aspects of this collaborative is we're hoping to take a solutions-oriented approach. Oh, to oh we're going to get to that. Yes. And so I'm uh, just to uh, throw out there really quick, but that's sort of goes hand in hand with listening. <laughs> so step one is to listen. And then, you know, then we'll we'll get to the next phase of what stories are coming out that really need to be examined more closely. What, what problems are people facing? And the pandemic has just been such a huge thing in everybody's life that really teasing out some of those important stories is going to be a process, I think. And that's what Reyes is involved with. On He's already going out into communities and doing some listening sessions. And so I think we're in the starting point of that. But Definitely, there's more to do still. So, Diana, uh, one of the unique aspects of the colonias, which I know you've covered at great length, and a, a huge factor in those communities is poverty and a lack of infrastructure. As we move toward recovering from the pandemic, what roles do you see those playing in moving forward? Well, I I do think that even before the pandemic, there were just I, I'm aware that there were extreme challenges that exist for in the areas of lack of infrastructure and lack of access to service in many of these colonias. And there are efforts and pools of funding that have existed and are, I guess, in many ways helping communities solve some of these problems. But I know that there's still many problems that exist and didn't go away <laughs> during the pandemic. So um, I haven't been reporting during the pandemic since on Colonius, but I can only imagine that that maybe compounded some of the difficulties that exist in those communities. But I will certainly be interested to hear what, what Reyes is learning as he talks to people, some of the places where he's going to be are in, in Colonius. And so, yeah, it'll be great to learn more about that. Reyes, what has your experience been like during the pandemic covering uh, border communities? Definitely the infrastructure component, particularly how um, it pertains to broadband. There's a lot of communities out there, for all intents and purposes, they are off the grid in terms of information. While the technology might be uh, available to them, um, to be able to, to have a, a stable internet hookup so they could access news and, and information. Um, oftentimes, because these are, are areas that have issues with, with poverty, they simply can't afford the you know, 120, 130, 40, 50 um, dollar per month bill that's associated with, with getting a broadband hookup. And so that really does limit the quality of information that they have access to. And um, you know I, I know that the, the state is 
very much aware that there are issues with broadband infrastructure to to be able to provide you know lower cost uh, stable uh, internet hookups for the communities and that'll assist the communities not just with access to information but also you know being able to work remotely also students being able to to work from their homes it it's a very big issue probably you know top three for sure possibly the top issue is providing that broadband infrastructure for these communities because while while uh you know more affluent communities might be able to work from home without a problem their their children uh, would be able to have, uh, work from uh, you know do schooling uh, remotely without a problem uh, for these communities it's much more complicated and so you know there there's an opportunity that the pandemic brought out that really highlighted uh, you know the information haves and the inf- information have nots and we we don't want that gap to to get in any further and so what I want to do is really show the stories on on what happens when when people don't have access to stable information and I you know I have seen it so far in, in speaking with people that you know there, there's a lot of, uh, of misinformation that, that they're assuming is true and 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 they're you know when you have decisions that are being made for a family and, and that's based on misinformation that, that really damages a community so so certainly the uh, broadband infrastructure is critical for uh, for pandemic recovery and we we fully intend to tell those stories and how that's impacting uh, communities in southern New Mexico and with pandemic relief it also opened up enormous pots of money that in different times you know would have been much much harder to access so in some ways this kind of laid bare the need in the most stark terms but also i think that it created an opportunity that many have been fighting for for years if not decades i i remember as a reporter talking to an fcc commissioner who came to hatch and saw students who had to to sit in their cars in the the high school parking lot to gain yep. access to wi-fi so and that was that was years ago so this now there have been people fighting for this. I think it was Senator Tom Udall at the time who was fighting for it. And now it looks like we're in a position where something might be done to address it. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of money that came in, a lot of federal money. Um, you know, New Mexico received a little more than $19 billion to be able to address the the pandemic here in the state. And, and so this was really a hopefully like a once in a lifetime set of circumstances that really exaggerated the issues that were already there. But fortunately, there is a, a, a surge of money that has come in. And, and now it's, you know, the, the legislature has done uh, their part in, in directing the money to the various state subdivisions and payments to individuals and, and to businesses. And, and you know, they, they have their formula on, on how much money should go where. And that's, that's going to be part of our reporting as well, because we want to make sure that Southern New Mexico uh, communities um, are receiving the, uh, uh, the, the proportion. Our, our fair shake. It, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because with the uh, with the demographics that Southern New Mexico has, uh, the, the the poverty and, and the English as a as a second language, it qualified for a lot more money than some other states may have qualified for because the need was greater. So uh, you you have these uh, this money coming in to a great extent to help uh, these Southern New Mexico communities because of their u- unique circumstances. So we need to make sure that they are receiving that these communities are receiving the the money that came in for those circumstances that that they're in. 
and um, th- that as well is going to be a, a, a part of our reporting. I want to go back to Diana real quick. Did you have something you wanted to add first? Yeah, I was just going to mention this really quickly, but one of our newsroom partners is the Columbus, New Mexico News, which is a, an online publication serving the small town of Columbus, New Mexico, on right on the U.S.-Mexico border. About, about 20 feet from the U.S.-Mexico border. Certainly, very <laughs> close. And um, the publisher and editor there has done some great reporting already on broadband challenges. She was just finding that even though there is a pool coming in to the state, the need is probably going to far, you know, exceed the amount of funding that's coming in in terms of like broadband infrastructure. So it's still going to be a challenge, it seems like, going forward. But that's something that we'll definitely keep an eye on. It seems like it's one of those emerging topics so far. This this project at its heart is based in uh, solutions-based journalism. We barely touched on that. Diana, first, I want to start with you and kind of explain a little more in depth what that means uh, in the the broader history of journalism. Well, solutions-based journalism is a movement within journalism that has really gained traction, I'd say, in the past decade. I think to some degree there, there has been a component of journalism that has looked at solutions in the past, but it hasn't been very big. And... Mostly in the history of journalism here in the United States, probably worldwide, there's been a tendency of journalists to focus on examining problems in their communities, in their states, in their regions, um, and not and just you know really examining examining those issues in much detail. A lot of times, a lot of work has gone into you know, out, outlaying what the different dynamics of any particular problem are. And that could be anything from very small issues to really large issues. But there hasn't been nearly as much attention paid to looking at possible solutions to those problems. And that's what solutions-based reporting aims to counter. And the idea is that it's not it's not advocacy and that journalists aren't advocating for any particular solution over any other any solution, um, but rather it's to critically examine possible solutions that have been tried in other places to solve a similar problem. And, and actually the solutions could come from another place. The solutions that are examined could come from another place or they could come within from within the community and maybe they just have been overlooked or haven't been examined much in the public eye so far. And it is um, it, it still uses all of the same principles of journalism that have existed for decades, but it's more taking it to the next step of saying, okay, here's this issue. Maybe it's, you know, like the pet overpopulation here in Southern New Mexico, or maybe it's water shortage and drought or anything, anything in between, you know, any problem that exists in a community. It's right. likely wildfires in another place. Yes, sure. wildfires. Um, and, and Reyes, how do you intend to approach that in your reporting moving forward? It's always with an open ear on what people feel that they need. You know, it, it's one thing to to chronicle, you know, their their circumstances and and you know how how things are not working for them, um, which is you know an important part of journalism. But it's also to to listen to them and 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 see where where they feel help could be provided, and at the same time 
treating journalism almost as a or a journalism story almost as a as a case study and, and looking at at other communities in, in similar situations and what worked there seeing what did not work there speaking with with experts about why uh, one scenario worked one way while it didn't work another way you know bringing all that into a report that shows a, a possible solution to whatever circumstance uh, a community is facing. And and the best way to do that is talking to people, listening to what they have to say, and seeing how other uh, communities have, have handled similar situations, and then providing that, that critical presentation on, on how that might work here in New Mexico. We've uh, talked a little bit about the, the listener sessions. Reyes, uh, what have you heard so far? One thing that's really stuck out to me is that while at, at the national level, um, we're, we're talking about pandemic recovery in, in ways of, you know, the communities opening back up and, 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 and people resuming their lives as, as much as possible um, to pre-pandemic norms. But in southern New Mexico, there's still a lot of people who are uh, facing the, the health aspect of the pandemic. Uh, I've been surprised by how many people are describing long covid um, and this is older people as well as younger people uh, who talk about um, heart palpitations, issues with their thyroid, um, uh, fatigue, and, and you know being able to uh, to be out and about one day and then spending you know three days in bed because they're just so tired. And and that's uh, so the health aspect of it, people's personal health. So that's still very much an issue. However, it might appear that that the the nation is is moving on beyond that phase. There's still many people with whom I've spoken that are still concerned about that and still being affected by uh, by COVID uh, uh, health-wise. Another thing is the emotional toll that COVID has made. I've, I've spoken with people who describe their personalities before they they suffered COVID as being very outgoing and, and you know, happy to do things. And and, and and then after COVID, they they say that emotionally they have just not been able to get back to who they were before. And, you know, what, what they describe very much, you know, fits the, uh, depression. They, they are, they don't call it depression themselves themselves and, and but when I ask them you know if they feel depressed they, they kind of think about it and they say well yeah I, I guess I do I, I just I know I'm I'm not the same person who I was before and so that aspect I, I really want to look into and, and speak with experts about the emotional toll and and, and the, the mental health aspect of covid and and, and see how um, you know what what the plans are in that regard for uh, for assistance and, and and help for people who are suffering. Uh, in that way. And it certainly has been uh, impactful for both children and adults. Reyes, let's stick with you and tell us um, about the importance of reaching out to Spanish-speaking communities in your reporting. You go anywhere in southern New Mexico, um, grocery stores, you know, uh, parking lots, post offices, you're typically going to hear Spanish. And while most of them are able to also speak English for many of the older people there, they still prefer to speak Spanish. And if there is not a concerted effort to be able to reach out to them, find them where they're conducting their lives, be able to speak with them and and hear what their concerns are, 
then you're going to have a pretty large uh, proportion of people in southern New Mexico who are still going to be excluded from the, the, the full benefits of pandemic recovery. Um, the recovery for them is going to be delayed. And so that's why it's really important when I go out to, to find people who are normally would not you know, be comfortable speaking with the media and just have a conversation with them. And many of them, it's almost like they have a pent up uh, a need to be able to speak. And, and so the listening sessions have been very, very valuable because it's not necessarily reporting for a specific story um, at, at this stage of, 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 uh, of the reporting. It's more about developing relationships with people, getting them to understand that we want to hear what they have to say, regardless of whether they speak English or Spanish. And and in many ways, it seems like it's it's a therapeutic process for the Spanish speakers to be able to share uh, what they've been going through or what their family has been going through. Sure. Um, Diana, this collaborative covers southern New Mexico from Columbus to Cloudcroft to Carlsbad. Being able to access the resources of those reporters and newsrooms seems invaluable. Definitely. It's great to have uh, so far so many news organizations on board so far from throughout the southern part of the state. And it's a relatively, when you compare the size of the state to how many news organizations, it seems like they're, they're sort of few and far between because we're such a large state. But the community within the journalism, journalists seems fairly tight-knit and many folks know each other. So it's been great to work with people so far. It's also great that I think we do have that reach as a collaborative because I think it helps to better inform, you know, communities from different regions of, of southern New Mexico about the different, maybe some of the differences or similarities that they're experiencing as a result of COVID-19. So yeah, I think it's a great, a great asset and we're still keeping an eye out for any uh, possible news organizations that might not be part of the collaborative right now, but that are interested in joining. So that's a, a great thing as well Is like, we're not saying that no other news organization can join. It's, it's a matter of there might be others in the future that see it as like a valuable resource as well. You may not, you may not be done growing. Um, one of the things that we have talked about is how tons of federal money has been dumped into New Mexico to improve some of the systems that have been laid bare during the pandemic. We talked about broadband internet access specifically, but there's also education, rural health care comes to mind. As we move forward, what will you both be looking for? Well, I think part of the challenge at this stage is that there are so many issues that were just brought to the forefront and problems that were brought to the forefront, even more so than they were before because of COVID. And we're going to have to try to probably take on different topics within the broader scope of COVID-19 recovery. Um, over time with with Reyes's reporting, as well as the newsroom partners. Ideally, it would be great if different journalists were pitching stories to do for, for the collaborative that are within some of these major areas of interest in COVID recovery. And so it's not, it's not for sure set in stone as to how we're going to approach each of these issues within COVID recovery. I think part of it is also going to be the listening sessions. You know, what are people telling us? What are community organizations saying? What is Reyes hearing on the ground? What are news organizations hearing? And all of these 
I think are going to, you know, shape the direction of, of the reporting that's done under the umbrella of the cooperative. Reyes? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And, and the other thing I would add is, you know, tracking the money that's coming, you know, just for, for K through 12 on, on the education, there's $1.6 billion that, that went into for a variety of different programs. And that's a lot of money and it can do a lot of things. And so being able to track that to make sure it's getting where it needs to, uh, to get understanding what the rationale was for the legislatures to, to send the money where, where they did send it in, in regards to, to educational programs. And then also on the ground, talking to, to the people who are supposed to be receiving relief through these funds, making sure that, that they're feeling it. Um, so if, if you have you know, more than a billion dollars coming in for K through 12 programs and, and pandemic relief, are those people feeling it? And if they're not, what's the issue there? How have other um, companies right. handled their their funding, um, their, their COVID relief funding for schools? Are, so, are uh, teachers and students and, and families actually uh, feeling the impacts of that? Exactly. Exactly. So uh, tracking that money, making sure it's getting where it needs to go and that it's doing what it was intended to do, that's going to be very, very important. Well, is there anything else either of you would like to add that I haven't asked you about? Well, the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative is we're building up some of our own infrastructure in terms of like a website and social media presence, but we we haven't quite got that off the ground yet, but it will be in the future. So we're also planning to hold a couple of like town hall type discussions in probably in Las Cruces, maybe next month. And so all the details aren't pinned down yet but if you're interested in this topic or what we're up to then you're definitely welcome to to you know come to one of these town halls or once our website is up and running there will be more details about what our activities are and so just keep an eye out for that yeah i would say that in order for this to succeed it really also includes a certain level of buy-in from the communities that we're serving so we really need to know about the issues that people are facing in order to look at to take a closer look at them definitely and that, that's one thing that i probably didn't make clear when i was describing solutions journalism but it is a point that is emphasized by the experts within solutions journalism is that to really go about applying solutions oriented reporting towards a problem it's best if the problem has already been defined pretty well. And sometimes that's not the case, depending on what the problem is. And so they really encourage that step one be to to really define the problem. And if that hasn't been done super well, then to it's okay to start there, you know, with the reporting and then move to the solutions as those as those problems are better defined. And that may be where we are, considering COVID is such uh, well, something that none of us has faced in our lifetimes before that there and, is. And um, it changes, it changes from day to day and week to week. So yes. Yeah. There's that unpredictability of it with, too. So. With, with each new variant, you know, we're, uh, we're facing a uh, different monster. It feels like, um, Reyes, anything, anything you'd like to add? I'd just like to share my email address if I could. In that way, if anyone has any questions, I know they, they can send me an email to 
share whatever it is they'd like to share and or if they want any information on where the next listening session is going to be at. Because um, I, I, I rotate, you know, from Sunland Park to Chaparral, Vado, Anthony, um, you know, right now we're taking the, the far southern part of the state and, and we'll, we'll be here for a, a short while more with listening sessions there. But then we're going to go to a different part of the state and, and eventually covering the entirety of southern New Mexico. So anyone who would like to know where we're going to be at or just has anything at all to share, my email address is Reyes, that's R-E-Y-E-S at southnmnews.org. Reyes at southnmnews.org. Yes, sir. Excellent. And that's also a great place for listeners to reach out and share experiences or issues that they might be having that we haven't thought about yet. That, that's exactly right. You know, because you, you can go out and you, you can have certain preconceptions in your mind regardless of how much research you do on the internet and until you go out and talk to people you never know what it is that's going to be revealed to you and everything's a learning experience and when you talk to 50 people you get 50 unique stories you know uh, uh, no two people have have the exact same experience yeah it's very true i mean even out like in in columbus i i went out out there and i was speaking with people who were at, at a festival for the, the Pancho Villa raid. And so I was talking to them about COVID and, and they brought up um, something about, you know, the actual numbers of, of people who have been sick with COVID and who have died. They, they were telling me that they don't think those numbers are going to be accurate because there's so many people in Columbus who, when they started to get sicker with COVID, they went back to family in Palomas. They, they went to Mexico. And so there, there's a great possibility to, to be cared for. Exactly. To be cared for. And, and also, you know, possibly, you know, if, if they, if there's a possibility they're going to pass away, you know, they, they wanted they to be to surrounded. Away. Sure. Absolutely. Exactly. So the, the numbers on, on deaths and, 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 you know, the true numbers of deaths for these border communities, it, it might be underreported um, a different figure from the official numbers because of that phenomenon of people wanting to go back home when they when they felt that they were critically ill. And that probably extends to Santa Teresa and and maybe as far north as as from Columbus as as Deming, you know, where right. a lot of the students in Deming schools live in Palomas. Right. So that's a unique circumstance that until you go out and talk to people and, and they share their stories that, that highlight this, you know, that, that, that can be off of our radar until we go out and, and talk to people directly. Well, Diana and, and Reyes, thanks again for taking some time to visit with us today. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Damien. I appreciate it. We hope you'll continue following all of these important stories and the rest of our reporting by reporters who live and work in the borderland, in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Reyes Mata III and Diana Alba Solar for joining us this week. You can follow the work of the Southern New Mexico Journalism Collaborative at the Las Cruces Sun News, the Alamogordo Daily News, the Carlsbad Curran Argus, Ruidoso News, Dimming Headlight, and Silver City Sun News. Also, please subscribe to this podcast available on Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, TuneIn, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. 
This week's podcast was written and produced by me. For all of us at the Sun News, thanks for listening.